This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Screen Show. I'm Jason DeRosso. It's been a week of mourning for many people and I know I speak for many film lovers when I say that it is with great sorrow that we face a world in which Jean-Luc Godard will never make another film. A man who was a champion of the cinematic a historian and a philosopher of cinema who broke the rules from his first film, Breathless, and continued to blaze trails until the very end. He died this week at 91. He made some of the most vital and experimental digital cinema of the last couple of decades. His quips and aphorisms will live on. All you need to make a movie is a girl and a gun, he once said, and it's true. He knew something of the strength of cinema's simplicity. But he was also a man who could make deliriously complex, fragmentary, playful works in which he grappled with the biggest questions of the age, Middle East politics, the Holocaust, capitalism. And increasingly in his career, it was the way he could astound you with a cut, with a juxtaposition of image and sound. I sometimes think that the world finally caught up to Jean-Luc Godard in those final decades And I wonder if he was almost the original hip-hop filmmaker in the way that he could use so masterfully a sampled image from somewhere else. He was always a vital and urgent voice. And I remember several years ago hosting a panel discussion at a symposium about his late films. We called the symposium, well, we referred to those films as late, late films because he did live to be so old. I'm, I'm talking about films like Goodbye to Language and Film Socialism. Well, that panel discussion was recorded at the University of Technology in Sydney, and we've reposted that conversation on the podcast feed of The Screen Show this week. So do have a listen. Another loss closer to home was that of the Indigenous TV stage and film actor and writer, Jack Charles, who, of course, died at 79 Now, uh, you can head to the ABC iView site where you'll find a section dedicated to Jack Charles. You'll see it under the heading Remembering Uncle Jack Charles. It celebrates his work across various shows like Preppers, Unsbrush with Fame, Black Comedy and more. And you'll also find interviews on the ABC Listen app, including uh, appearances on Conversations and Speaking Out. Now, Jack Charles was a member of the Stolen Generations, of course, taken from his mother at just four months of age. And... As an artist and a public figure, he helped bring attention to the plight of Aboriginal people and the ongoing pain and disadvantage they suffer as a result of colonisation. Well, next week, a documentary series screening on SBS goes back to where this all begins. Directed and presented by Rachel Perkins, it's a three-part series called The Australian Wars, which retraces the battles, the massacres, the political and legal wranglings over land and over resources that formed Australia. It's a very well-researched series featuring leading historians, but also conversations with Indigenous people still living on or near the sites of atrocities. And leading us through on camera is Rachel Perkins, whose unintrusive but curious and empathetic interview style is a standout. She knows this terrain well. She comes from a family that's had such an important role in Australian politics and Aboriginal advocacy. She's made films and television dealing with these issues and this history. But her skill, well, one of her many skills, is that she doesn't take anything as given here. Nothing is taken for granted. This is a show that transmits its own curiosity. And it will be fascinating to you, no matter how much you think you know about our history. Rachel Perkins is my first guest, and she's coming up after this clip. I was here. I am the river that carried the strangers to shore. I am the trees that were carved into weapons. I am the mountains that echoed the gunfire. I am the earth reshaped by our story. I was here. I remember the Australian Wars. Rachel Perkins, it's a pleasure to have you on the screen show. It's a delight to be here, Jason. The series begins at the War Memorial in Canberra and it's not the first time 
in the series that the observation is made that we as a country commemorate war quite a lot and, and the loss and the sacrifice associated with war, the service and so forth. But making this series, how did you come to reflect on the way that this country relates to the conflict, the war on the frontiers? Yeah, the, I think you're right. We do um, acknowledge warfare, rightly so, in this country and the sacrifice and the service that um, Australians give when they serve their country. We spend a lot of money on it. We just spent $100 million on an overseas museum in France and uh, we're spending a half a billion dollars renovating the Australian War Memorial. And so we are a country that in some ways defines itself by warfare. But then there's this contradiction about this other warfare <laughs> that we don't talk about and we don't really acknowledge. And that is has been described as frontier warfare or colonial warfare. But in this case, we have chosen to call it the Australian Wars for a number of reasons, which, you know, I can go into and are probably going to be quite controversial with some people. But uh, that's the name of our series. Do you think the word war is partly what's controversial? Because I know that it is discussed and different historians in the show, in the series, have different conceptions of what naming conflicts a war means and the significance of that. Can we, can we talk a little bit about the use of that word and why it's so important, I think? Yeah, it's a good question. I think there's a lot of work that has been done on what defines something as war and warfare. And I think I can't sort of give you the exact words, but it's pretty much accepted that using force on a people to enforce a will on them is defined as war. And in Australia, there were definitely, there is overwhelming evidence that military or paramilitary force was used um, against uh, the Indigenous people who were here. And the Indigenous people also fought back and resisted using force. Significant lives were lost on both sides and in the process of the fighting, which was over predominantly land, you know, the sovereignty of a country was changed. Now, as Henry Reynolds says, the historian in the series, that is what can be more important, what can be a bigger um, thing to go to war over really. So the choice of the word war may be controversial to some people, but what was at stake and what was being fought over were, you know, was a way of life, the ownership of land and waters and livelihoods. So by any definition, that defines itself as war. And it wasn't all conflict. You know, there were friendships, there were accommodations, in some areas was peaceful, but largely there was conflict. Is it Reynolds who also says, and I quite like this line, um, war, it was war because of what it was about, not how it was fought. And I think that speaks to the way that people can quibble over sort of militaristic definitions of what war is. Um, but he was getting to that the particular historian I'm, I'm rem remembering was getting more to the kind of moral definition or the the deeper definition of what war signifies. Exactly. I think he put it very elegantly in that description. I think that it makes it hard for us because to understand it as war, I think, because it's not the traditional warfare that our parents perhaps were involved in or, or our people now are involved in where, you know, it's two clear forces, you know, in trenches, battling over clear areas of territory. You know, this was a very, this was guerrilla warfare. It was fought sporadically. People crossed over between battle lines, you know, allegiances changed. It was, sometimes it was friendly, sometimes it was violent. It went for a hundred, more than a hundred years. You know, it's very different warfare than the warfare we're used to today. And some historians said to me, and in 500 years' time, the wars fought 
in the future will be very different to the wars that are fought now. Warfare changes, and the sort of warfare that happened here was is often called colonial warfare because it was European forces occupying often First Nations areas of land, and they often have the same defining features, these colonial warfares, but they are war. And in New Zealand, uh, Aotearoa New Zealand, they've recently renamed the Maori Wars the New Zealand Wars in acknowledgement of the fact that these wars founded the modern state. So I thought it was apt that we do a similar thing because also I want a way for people to be able to talk about this, you know, a sort of something in the vernacular, a way to describe it because calling it frontier wars is so generic, you know, or colonial warfare is so generic. Um, I think we need a, a way to come to terms with it and that begins with naming it. Tell me about your decision to to be on screen in this series as an interviewer and, you know, at certain points you're, you know, at a site, walking through a site, talking about what happened there with uh, local Indigenous people or historians and you, of course, bring to this series your own family history, which is on your father's side, you know, involves a massacre and, you know, one of your ancestors who, you know, your great-grandmother, I believe, who survives a massacre. So so this is all very emotional terrain for you. Tell me about how difficult that was. Well, look, it was not my preference to be in the series I don't like appearing in front of camera. I found doing pieces to camera very strange and uncomfortable. (laughs) So I'm a reluctant participant in it. But there was an honesty, I suppose, to being in it that I felt worked with the style of film that we were making. It was transparent, you know, that the perspective, I suppose, and the journey I was on was there for the audience to see. And, yes, I got to share my own family experience on both my Kalkadoon, uh, my father's father's side, and my Aranda, my father's mother's side, um, of violent conflict, so their their experiences. So, um, you know, and then so many Indigenous people have these stories in their families. You know, it's not very unique, unfortunately. But what I liked about that was that, I mean, you know, you've got these wonderful sort of academic experts on screen and they all speak so wonderfully, you know, people like Angus Murray, uh, Marsha Langton's there, but Peter Stanley, Henry Reynolds, a, a whole heap of people who, who are very learned and are coming partly from that academic tradition um, or mostly, but also you do this thing in, in the series where you do address this issue of the historical discrepancy often between the value given to history and official histories and the value given to oral history. And you also do this wonderful thing. And it's in this moment where you take out your phone, if, if I'm remembering correctly, and you play a recording of, I think it's your great grandmother. Talk, it's a small segment, but she's talking about something that happened, a terrible thing, thing that happened. And that in that moment is you kind of putting side by side oral history with more official forms of written history. I mean, that's an issue that's addressed in the series, isn't it? Yes, because I think part of this story, and we don't dwell on it much, but part of the story of the Australian Wars is the denial of it. You know, the secrecy, the cover-up, the turning away from this part of our history. That's a big part of the story. And there has been a tendency for people to not believe um, accounts that Aboriginal people have passed down through their families um, to to deny those accounts. You know, people have agendas, why they want to do that. But, you know, like why would my great-grandmother lie about all her, you know, family being shot? And we don't really know where exactly it happened. Exactly. We know it happened at a place called Blackfellas Bones. We don't know how many people were killed. We don't really know who did it. And why? All we know is that it happened, you know. And what do you do with that? Well, you acknowledge it. The other thing is that people tend to think, oh, well, you know, these family stories, they change their stories. They change over time. It's like Chinese whispers, you know. 
there is, I think, an element of that. But within all of these stories, there's a core of truth, I think, you know, from these eyewitnesses who survived to tell the story. And so it might be that they shift over time, but there is there is the kernel in there of truth. But then when you look at primary sources, which, you know, we call is a word that we call for the original written documents. It might be a letter. It could be a newspaper or a diary or a court record. You know, they all come with a certain agenda too. People might be covering their tracks or they might be boasting or they might be trying to, you know, generate a record to get themselves out of trouble. So primary sources aren't, you know, completely reliable either. I mean, history is a finding the history is is it's it's murky but but i think there's this wonderful circularity as well in in the contribution of there's an archaeologist at least one archaeologist that you interview who then brings us to this space of kind of you know forensic science and and how forensic science then starts to corroborate some of these old stories um she talks about bone fragments found at a certain site where allegedly there was a huge bonfire to to cover up a massacre and you know on which many bodies were burned for for many days and then her scientific evidence starts to corroborate those oral histories as well which i thought was interesting yeah i think archaeological work could do a lot to help support oral testimony or family histories of this violence there's very little funding obviously for that sort of work But the thing is that people went to great lengths to cover their tracks, you know, bonfires that went for days and days and days and then coming back and smashing up even further the bones or then washing them away in some cases or burning bullet carcasses on top of, you know, human remains. So people had learnt how to get rid of human remains and they were very diligent in that process because they knew sometimes, although no one ever had, one case, one case in Australia where uh, white people were tried and found guilty of massacring Aboriginal people. One case out of 400 massacres that we know of. So people were very careful about getting rid of things. So, yes, archaeological processes can assist but in some ways it's just the scale is so enormous. It's where would you start? <laughs> this is a series, Rachel Perkins, that takes its place in this historical moment of reckoning. It's a series that seeks to speak truth to powerful statues and monuments. There's a few colonial figures. Few colonial figures have been more celebrated and memorialised than Governor Macquarie, and, and this show is very much invested in demythologising a lot of these early colonial figures and giving them a, a reappraisal. And and that's all very fascinating, especially because there's so much evidence to kind of re, you know, give them, put them in a new perspective. But what I found also very fascinating is the level of hypocrisy at a time when Britain is abolishing slavery. And indeed, when certain kind of progressive edicts are coming from the Crown, all those, you know, thousands of kilometres away, the left hand doesn't want to know what the right hand is doing in a way, does it? I mean, so massacres are sort of happening and the law is kind of being bent um, in various frontiers, isn't it? Yes, and this is the great contradiction of the British Empire, I think. And one of the interviewees says, who's British himself, says essentially they're just lying to themselves because they want to be seen to be doing good and to be bringing the benefits of British they see the benefits of British citizenship to people they see as largely savage. Um, so they have this sort of um, good intent. But at the core of what's going on is imperialism, it's wealth, the seeking of territory and wealth and power. You know, whenever the empire is threatened, um, they will use military force to quash any resistance. But what was or interesting any Yeah, and what's interesting as well is that or you might get a magistrate who's just moved on because it's too difficult for him, you know, and it's always a he of course, he he will, you know, raise a query or, or an objection and and try and I suppose execute the let to, you know the law to in 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 a very correct way and it will just be too difficult and that person 
will be moved on because they're a, they're a sort of fly in the ointment of this process that you're talking about, I suppose, which is a, is a smoother running of the exploitation of uh, primary resources and all sorts of things that were, hap- that were happening. Yeah, I think it's important to keep in mind that the resistance here in Australia, and this is one of the great myths that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people just didn't fight back, you know. We have this view, oh, the Maoris fought, but Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people didn't fight back. Well, of course we did, and we fought back so strongly that it, in a way, it forced the British and later the colonial governments of uh, the various states today to violently upscale their military response to Aboriginal people. So I think this is another part of this sort of hidden history um, or the, the sort of Australian silence about the level of Aboriginal resistance and how strong it was. So strong, in fact, that in Queensland, you know, they needed a native police force for 50 years to ensure that they could occupy that large state. I mean, it's a big paramilitary force over an extended period of time, and it was due to Aboriginal people's fierce resistance. I want to go back to this idea of speaking to the descendants of massacres and Indigenous people in various parts of the country that you speak to, people like Glenda Chalker of the of the Dural Nation who talks about uh, her ancestors and the Appen Massacre. And incidentally, there's a very interesting conversation with a white woman who's a descendant of a man who was in the 46th Regiment that carried out that massacre, which is fascinating. But I want to talk to you about, well, I suppose today we call it triggering, but just the trauma of confronting these moments with these people and, well, how difficult that was as a, as a filmmaker. I mean, Rodney Dillon, another Indigenous man from Tasmania, talks about not wanting to drive across a bridge because it's named after John Batman. Uh, who founded Melbourne but was also responsible for many murders. Yeah, tell me about negotiating that intensity of emotion. Well, I think people knew what we were going to do, you know. We were very clear that we were going to talk about this violent past. My general, you know, view is that people responded very well Everyone agreed to be interviewed. Everyone wanted to talk about it. And everyone felt that it was good to put it on the record. My personal experience is that telling these stories makes you feel better in some way. It's a process of being heard, that there is some satisfaction in that. It's not the end of it, it's almost the beginning of it. <laughs> like, what do you do? when you know, what are we going to do? When our country comes to terms with this, what are we going to do about it? You know, that's really the the question that is not asked in the series. How are we going to deal with this and move forward? Um, But my experience was that it wasn't, you know, it was upsetting for people at times. It was upsetting for me, but it's, you know, yes, it's worth getting upset about. Like, yes, it's worth shedding tears about. And I shed many tears, you know, reading through the historical records and it deserves tears and it deserves anger and all of those human emotions. Of course, we haven't mentioned so far the recreations in, in the series and they're wonderful. They're um, quite extensive. Tell me about the budget you had for that. And, yeah, what was that like to direct? Because also you're directing, in some cases, some very horrific scenes, of course. Yeah, the recreations were... You know, drama is expensive. It was, I think it's like a third of the budget for only 10 days shooting. We shot it mostly in New South Wales, but a bit in Alice Springs. And uh, it was pretty um, ultra low budget, you know. That's a documentary series. You know, it's not a full-blown drama. This isn't, you know, Vikings, but (laughs) it sort of had uh, some challenges, you know. And we were shooting during covid But I did try and bring the dramatised sequences as close as I possibly could to historical accuracy. So the spearing of Philip, for example, is very closely scripted to the accounts that we have of what happened on the beach that day. Other things are more loosely scripted because we really don't know what happened. You know, we know things like Tongalongata, the Tasmanian warrior, lost his wife not lost his wife, she was abducted and another person was shot, two other people were shot 
during the event, but we don't know the detail. We don't know who did it. We don't know, you know. So sometimes we've had to take some creative license. It's dramatised, but it is as close as possible to the records that we have of what happened. Yeah, and people like Pamelwoy, of course, the first um, really major guerrilla fighter figure in New South Wales uh, around the early colony of Sydney. Was there much no? I, I assume there would have been more known about him in a sense because there would have been a lot of documentation as well. And also you speak to several, well, a couple of descendants, if, if my memory serves me right. Yes, well, we speak to a few people who are from the same language group as Pemawoy, and we do have, yes, some primary sources, um, First Fleet diarists uh, and, you know, accounts of his exploits. So where we where we had those, we, we obviously drew from that. And quite a, he was quite a figure, wasn't he? I mean, he was the head of quite an organised resistance that just really terrorised the early settlers across a very wide geographical area. Yes, and I think that, you know, well, I know that there's there's been various attempts at making movies of his life, Jason, so no doubt uh, there's another attempt being made at the moment. So no doubt, hopefully, you'll be interviewing someone about the Pemelwoy movie. <laughs> oh, who's directing that? Should I know? Should I know about this? I'm... Oh, look, I think it's still, you know, still going through a process, but um, okay, they're working on it. So uh, early stages, I think. But these are epic, amazing Australian stories, though. These are incredible stories, and I mean, Pemelwoy is just one story. There's, you know, the story of a mosquito from New South Wales who went down to Tasmania. There's the story of Truganini who went on the epic journey around Tasmania. There's, you know, Yagan in Western Australia. There's Dundalee in Queensland. There are so many incredible stories in this country during this period. These are the these are the foundational narratives of the of our nation. And you know, the fact that we don't know their stories is a tragedy. It's a it's a great loss because we can feel proud of, you know, these epic adventures, these epic, you know, trials that they went through to sustain their communities um, at a time of incredible change. We just need to bring these stories to the fore and I think in the future we will see more of these narratives come out that will form the way that we understand our country because essentially that's what stories do, don't they? They they help us understand who we are and, and they build an identity and and the conflict and the war that happened here is absolutely central to our identity as a nation and the sooner we come to terms with it, the better. Rachel Perkins, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. Rachel Perkins, director of the three-part documentary series, The Australian Wars, screening on SBS TV next week and then available on SBS On Demand. And a side note, that conversation was recorded before we learned of the death of Jack Charles. You're on The Screen Show with me, Jason DeRosso. Well, the Australian actor Murray Bartlett won an Emmy this week. He won an Emmy for Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Limited or Anthology Series or Movie, and that series was The White Lotus, a six-part series available to watch on demand on Foxtel, written and directed by the creator of that show, Enlightened, another great show, Mike White. The White Lotus is set in a luxury Hawaiian resort, and it's a satire on privilege, injustice, and human nature. After beginning with the sight of a coffin loaded onto a jet, leaving the island resort, we flash back to, well, about a week or so, where we meet a group of holidaymakers who are arriving to the island. They're all intent on making the most of the resort's idyllic beaches and lush alfresco dinners by the glow of tiki torches. But grievances, fear and rage all fester within the pastel walls of this place. There's a honeymooning bride, played by Alexandra Daddario, who discovers she's made a terrible mistake. A young woman holidaying with her friend's super-rich family, played by Brittany O'Grady, who becomes sensitised to the plight of the island's service class, and the resort's Australian manager, Armand, played by Murray Bartlett, who is about to fall off the wagon. The White Lotus is a show that sits somewhere in the Faulty Towers hotel comedy tradition with a touch of Robert Altman political satire. 
Murray Bartlett, an actor whose list of credits includes Neighbours, Looking and Tales of the City, is definitely a standout as the resort's high-functioning boss, a man who can neutralise the angriest guest with a pearly white smile and a complimentary massage. Until, of course, things start to really not go his way. This conversation with Murray Bartlett was recorded as the show released last year. We thought we'd replay it for you in light of his Emmy win. A warning, there's some strong language in the clip ahead. Here they come. Big smiles. Wave, Lani. There we are. Wave like you mean it, Lani. Look, Lani, I know it's your first day on the job and uh, I don't know how it worked at your other properties, but here, self-disclosure is discouraged, especially with these VIPs who arrive on the boat. You know, you don't want to be too specific as a, as a presence, as an identity. You want to be more generic. Generic? Yes. You know, it's a, it's a Japanese ethos where we are asked to disappear behind our masks as pleasant, interchangeable helpers. It's tropical kabuki. And the goal is to create for the guests an overall impression of vagueness that can be very satisfying, where they get everything they want, but they don't even know what they want, or what day it is, or where they are, or who we are, or what the fuck is going on. Well, Murray Bartlett, welcome to The Screen Show. Thanks, Jason. Now, this character of Armand is is so central to the show, of course, but not just because he's the manager of this luxury resort, but also because the way he unravels, I think, is indicative of how the show is hell-bent on peeling back the veneer of almost everyone and everything. Um, tell me about him and that centrality to the themes of this show. Yeah, I mean, I think he, one of the great things about this character, I think, is it's set up in the role that he has. He has such a public facade that he has to keep up as the manager of this hotel, but he's got this sort of rich inner life full of demons, a lot of them connected to his addiction issues and stuff. And it, there's sort of that interplay between the inner and the outer life and the sort of the niceties that we keep up with each other to sort of mask what's going under underneath. And he sort of represents what happens when you can no longer keep that mask in place, you know? So, yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing sort of journey to take with a character where you get to play that sort of public facade and feel the bubbling of the inner life and then you get to really fully explore what's going on underneath. Was he always supposed to be Australian? I mean, in the script. I don't I don't think it was specific in the script. Yeah, I don't remember it even saying that he wasn't American. But I know that they wanted me to, um, I think I auditioned with both my American and Australian accent, which I often do. But, yeah, Mike liked it, obviously. And it makes sense in a hotel that, you know, the manager could have an accent. Well, it's kind of, it, there's a bit of a thematic ring or resonance to it as well because I just think it's so interesting how this is also a show that invites the viewers to contemplate Hawaii and or this location and its history and who was here before the resorts and who is still here in the shadow of the resorts and all of that is kind of interesting. And, of course, as an Australian, we can relate to those themes and in, interrogating Absolutely. ourselves over, you know, why we're here and, and, and how we got here. But... I mean, are these themes a surprise to most Americans, do you think? Is, is it a surprise for them to sort of consider Hawaii or these kinds of islands as being, you know, as having this history of colonisation and all the rest of that? It's an interesting question. Um, let's ask, Amer- ask America. <laughs> because I get the impression that it's not something that's on a lot of people's minds. I mean, that particularly like the First Nations people in the, in the U.S., it's not often part of the conversation, which is really frightening. We, you know, we talk about the generations of people that have come afterwards and, you know, particularly in terms of slavery, how awful that was and the legacy or the continuing sort of unfolding of what that has created in this country. But, yeah, the awareness even of the First Nations people here is... I, it doesn't feel like it's on the radar much. And I think that's such a wonderful sort of aspect of this show. And it's something that is close to Mike White's heart in terms of um, he spends a lot of time in Hawaii. He sort of 
lives half the time in Hawaii and is very plugged into the history of Hawaii and Hawaiians and how that has all played out and was very mindful of that in this in this show. So, yeah, it's a great conversation to be having that is not often had, I feel like, in this country. Tell me about Mike White um, and, you know, because he's so talented, he wears various hats, he directs, he's the showrunner. He's a great actor too. Yes. What's your experience of working with him, especially given that he has such control over this show and it's so much his creation, I suppose. So stepping into that, what's it like collaborating with someone who, who, who does have that godlike control over this world that he's created and, and any newcomer playing one of these roles he's written? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I think he's a genius, <laughs> basically. He started writing this show in August last year and we started shooting in October, which is just a phenomenal feat. That's um, insane. I didn't realise that. Yeah, incredible. So he's incredibly talented and fast, <laughs> not only to just write, you know, six hours of television, but for it to be so rich and complex and, you know, these incredible characters, all of them, I think, interweaving all these very pertinent themes in a way that I think is not always subtle, but it's definitely not banging you over the head with it. It's just so clever and funny. So, you know, he's a genius in that way. Also, he's a really good man. He's just a kind, funny sometimes awkward, just generous, loving human being. And he creates on set a feeling of fun and play. So you feel like you can try stuff out. I mean, the scripts were brilliant, so I didn't want to mess with any of it, but he encourages you to, you know, just try it. You know, we tried things all different ways. It's very supportive and, um, yeah, it feels like play. But there's something amazing about having someone like that at the helm who has created, written and is directing because you're sort of at the source, you're at the creative source all the time, you know, and he's fast and he's flexible. And so, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, you know, I was terrified for the first few moments as you always are at the beginning of a job. And then it was just incredibly fun. And yeah, I just, I trust, trusted him. Uh, and, and that's that's important, I think, playing a role like this because it's such a roller coaster, and there's so many levels that you're trying to play with, but not go too far, but like still go far enough. And to have someone who um, you can trust, who's kind of guiding you through, is so key. Yeah, because what I what I really admire about this role and the way you play it is that I, I was watching it thinking, gee, this could really have fallen into cliche. You know, that we, we sort of have that camp cliche of the high functioning, you know, guy, especially who, you know, the, the almost like the are you being served kind of model, you know. Yeah, yeah. And and yeah. this character is is never that and and yet he's capable of a lot. He's capable of compassion, but also is capable of being really calculating. He's got this troubled past. Um, that pushes him to do all sorts of crazy things. And yet he's yeah. also very, very competent. So it never falls into cliche and he never becomes a butt of the joke of, of the show, I don't feel. Um, but was that, did you have to think a lot about not going over that ledge and becoming that sort of more campy, jokey, uh, jokey sort of um, uh, performance with, with this character, given how outrageous he, you know, his journey does become? I mean, I, from my audition, I never wanted him to be that. I'm very aware of that, particularly as a gay man. I think that you, like, you're very mindful of not wanting to go into cliche, but I also really wanted to let him be who he is. He is a very sort of, you know, as a hotel manager, as we've seen, oh, I've seen through my life, many hotel managers, like, have this sort of, they're a showman. He's a showman, you know, and, like, I wanted to lean into that. And I think it, it it's in the writing, you know, just even in the moments where he's sitting at his desk by himself trying to not take drugs, you know, like, there's, you have, there's, there's moments all along the way and then, you know, eventually more and more of, of seeing under the veil of this character. And I think that's, from what I understand from Mike, that's what he responded to in my audition because it is a really fun character and you want to, like, make it fun and funny and, like, you know, um, really go there. 
But he's not a it fool, has. you know. He's not a fool, though, you know, which I think, which I really admire about. He's not a fool at all. And he does, he makes some, well, takes some really bad decisions and takes some really bad yeah. drugs. <laughs> but he, yeah, yeah, exactly. But he also has enough self-awareness at times to feel really terrible about what he's doing and reflect back, you know. So, so I mean, I think it's a brilliantly written character in that way. And I think it's set up in the beginning as he is this kind of showman and, like, he is kind of campy. And then as the show goes on, you start to see under the surface of who this character is. And so it was really exciting to kind of plot those those moments of vulnerability and, yeah, just showing the, the sort of the, the other sides of him which is what I think Mike White is so brilliant at in, in writing three-dimensional characters. He doesn't write two-dimensional characters, they, and that's what makes them effective. They can be incredibly funny, but there's a humanity there that always comes out that allows you to connect with them and or identify with them, and it, so it doesn't let you off the hook of, like, that's the crazy character. It's like, you know, it sort of hooks you in in a, in a great way, I think. Did you ever wait tables? In, yeah. In, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Hello. I had, my, I had some very rich reference points for that stuff. <laughs> no, no, because I did too. And, and I, I've waited tables in my time and I noticed we're about the same age and you grew up in Perth and I'm from Perth originally. So ah. I, was, I, was, I was kind of trying to think because I waited tables at a time when, um, you know, a lot of people, I was waiting tables with people who were studying at WAPA, which you didn't study at WAPA, I don't think. Uh, I didn't. No, I went right. to NIDA. Right. But um, look, let's talk a little bit more about your career. And I was just really curious about um, how serendipity always plays a, a part in actors' careers. And there is also a lot of hard work and a lot of disappointment. I know that. But serendipity seems to have played a part where you've sort of taken a bit of a punt on travel too. Like that opportunity you get to do Sex in the City happens when, you know, it wasn't planned. You're in America and within a reasonably short space of time, this opportunity lands. Um, you know, tell me, can you think back to that and think how do you sometimes wonder what, what would have happened to my career if that, that moment hadn't happened? Do you interrogate the, the why about that moment in your life? I don't really. I think because now looking at the big picture, it makes so much sense. Um, I wish I'd known that. Well, maybe, maybe not. I was going to say I wish I knew that before I was going to New York <laughs> to take out the anxiety. But, no, it was... Um, and it was, it was also sort of part of my New York story and it was a very New York story the way that that came about, that Sex and the City job of just, you know, meeting this person who knew this person who was friends with the producer at Sex and the City. And so, I mean, I underscoring all of this, I do feel like I've been incredibly lucky <laughs> in my career. It's a, you know, it's a unpredictable career which I've come to love the unpredictability most of the time. But, um, yeah, so I, I have had great fortune and I, I have also taken some risks. Like I decided to go and go to New York and see what could happen, not knowing that, that you know, that's what would happen. But I think there is something about like really just like jumping off the cliff sometimes, not literally. No, no, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but just sort of taking a big risk and, and watching those kind of magical things happen. And I do, I have been fortunate enough to have had the means to like do those sort of, you know, do those things and then watch those sort of opportunities come. As you said, you know, with a lot of work and a lot of anxiety along the way, but, but looking back, I've been fortunate. I read that the call came to um, do looking when you were on holiday in Egypt which is kind of where I was going with that previous question that you've, you know, that those moments have sort of fallen from the sky in weird times in your life. Um, what were you doing in Egypt? Well, I'd had, as I have every sort of five or six years of like, what the hell am I doing? Am I really an actor? Am I, should I really be doing this? I would, I went through one of those crisis points. My partner at the time um, was Egyptian and was going back to uh, work on a film in Egypt. We'd, been back a few times I love Egypt and we uh we'd also made this short film which was going to the Dubai Film Festival later in the year it was during that revolution in Egypt so uh it was a you know slightly scary but like exciting time to be there not really scary when I got there it was it was amazing and it slapped me across the face of like what are you 
worrying about. You have this incredibly privileged life and you're doing what you love and you live in New York City and these people are in a revolution. (laughs) Get it together. It was an amazing perspective shifter for me. It was really like, it was really fantastic. Where were you? Were you you in Cairo as the streets were kind of exploding with people? We were in Cairo. We went a number of times to Tahrir Square where there were the big sort of protest slash celebration was because it was very buoyant at that time. You know, like people were really excited about the possibility of change, um, which, you know, hasn't worked out very well, unfortunately. But it was it was an amazing time to be there. And, yeah, just put my, got my, you know, my perspective in check um, in terms of just feeling very fortunate in my life. But, and also just, you know, understanding or trying, you know, getting, having a glimpse of what, that might be like and 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 starting to understand uh, what you know Egyptians were going through at the time but we were there for four months so it was a it was a good chunk of time to absorb what was going on and to um so it was it was a life-changing experience for me really well wow. and, and the, then we went the sorry, call, the call came then, through we went we went we then went to Dubai and our short film like did very well and it was it was a sort of a it was a, it was a great sort of end to the trip and and at the same time I was auditioning for looking and yeah I was auditioning with a mustache I was trying to fit in in Cairo because everyone had like facial hair and I was the white guy so I was like I'll grow a mustache I'll like totally fit in which didn't work but I think it helped me get the job on looking <laughs> <laughs> going back to the white lotus I was just interested in what you said about that sort of melancholy realization that that things didn't quite turn out as you know, people might have hoped in Egypt, and obviously that story still is unfolding um, as it does. You know, history unfolds and continues to unfold. But there's something about that in the White Lotus which I quite like. This sense of uh, certain characters sort of fighting against the inevitability of certain structures of oppression and so forth. And I don't know, power kind of circling back around. I don't want to give things away or spoil things, but but the people who start on top tend to end up on top, I yeah. guess you could say. Um, it's, it feels like it would have been a very political set to be having lunch on. And, you know, were people sort of discussing politics a lot on set and, and the state of the United States? I mean, it was hard not to because we were shooting right through the election in the United States. So it was, I mean, it was it was everywhere and on all of our minds. Um and it was very therapeutic in a way to be working on a show that is holding a mirror up to some of the aspects of society that are dysfunctional and that are, are not working very well for us in terms of, you know, valuing some people over, over other people. And, you know, many people, not all, of course, but some people with power and privilege, you know, wielding it in ways that is um, not beneficial to everybody. So it was, it was it was kind of great to be able to have these conversations offset and during <laughs> during the scenes that as the you know the the characters are either grappling with or, or talking about these things. And I, I you know I feel like I hope that that is why the, the show seems to be striking a chord is that it's like it is all these characters exist in all of us they're representative of often of elements of human behavior and and human nature and a lot of the elements of these characters are quite of the ugly sort of side of human behavior and human nature and in terms of how that plays out in the hierarchy of our society um that's something that we can really afford to look at right now well i feel like it's urgent that we look at it um if we don't want our environment to collapse and <laughs> to all end up, you know, completely divided, especially in this country, there's so much division at the moment on so many issues and in so many ways. And, you know, if we can't, I, I, I think the challenge is to get back to, you know, um, can we through all this, even if we don't agree, be kind and compassionate to each other. And I hope that that's, you know, in reflecting on what the White Lotus brings up, that we can hopefully come to that sort of conclusion that we need to be kinder and more compassionate and understanding to each other. Yeah. Um, just looking back to your time waiting waiting tables, how formative was it for you as, as, a, as a performer? In terms of the people you served, did you ever serve, did you work in places that were similar to this resort, the White Lotus, and serve people this entitled? 
I mean, yes. <laughs> uh, I worked at a few different places. Like in, I worked at the Firehouse Restaurant in Fremantle, which like um, did sort of big functions and stuff. And, and then I, I worked, I waited and, and bartended in New York when I first came to New York. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, the majority of people were lovely, but it's astounding sometimes when you get into situations where people feel like they have some power over you how the uglier sides of human nature rear their head very quickly. <laughs> and I feel like if you played back those scenarios to the people who are doing them, they'd probably, well, hopefully they'd be horrified. But it's, you know, it's this weird thing when we find ourselves in situations of privilege or where we feel, in, feel entitled, these sort of monstrous uh, aspects of ourselves are unleashed. Yeah. And did that, I mean, because you play slightly tipsy or sozzled or, you know, slightly stoned quite well, very well. Um, and I understand that's really difficult as an actor. And I guess being a bartender, you've seen your fair share from a sober point of view of people in various states of inebriation and so forth. But is it is it hard as an actor to play someone in various states of sort of uh, disarray, let's say, chemically induced or otherwise, you know? Again, you know, like we were talking about before, the nature of this character of Armand, like you don't want to go too far, but you want to go far enough. And I think that's always the thing is finding the levels. Like because, you know, the sort of old school acting drunk doesn't ring true anymore. We're not, we, you know, some of us are very, can be very sort of functional drunks. So it's just finding the levels that work and that's where it comes in, you know, having an amazing director like Mike White to reflect back how the levels are going. But, you know, hopefully your instincts as an actor kick in. I have, you know, I have limited experience in that area and I've like observed a lot of people. So, you know, I'm bringing my own kind of reference points to the table and then you just, you know, it's, it's play really and, and trying to um, sort of hit the right level. And that's, you know, that's why it's so great being on a set where you're encouraged to do that. And it's fine to go over the top when you're trying to find what level works because then you can always bring it back. So it's just, you know, yeah, it is, it's, it's, there are some moments when it's daunting and in terms of the intense schedule on this show, we were working all out of order. So I really wanted to plot the points of where he at, he's at emotionally and in terms of what drugs oh, he's that's taken. Tough. Yeah. That was tough, but it was, but you know, that's a great challenge. That's like doing a great jigsaw puzzle where you're trying to sort of hold it all together. But uh, yeah, definitely, definitely challenging at times. Wow. Well, you wouldn't you wouldn't have known that you chopped that out, out of order because um, it is a seamless slide <laughs> and a very slippery one downwards. Um, Murray, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. Likewise. Emmy Award winner Murray Bartlett. The White Lotus is available to watch on Binge and Foxtel on Demand. And we can apparently expect season two, which is set in Sicily in about a month's time. That's it for The Screen Show. My name's Jason DeRosso. Sound engineer was Simon Branthwaite and the producer was Sarah Corbett. See you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.